Hello, and welcome to Primary Immunodeficiency Questions and Answers. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation, or IDF, a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the diagnosis, treatment, and quality of life of people diagnosed with primary immunodeficiency diseases. You are listening to one of several special episodes focusing on young adults. In this series, we are going to be diving into topics that matter most to young adults living with primary immunodeficiencies, or PI. And now, let's begin. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode, Employment and PI, part of IDF's special programming for young adults. I'm your host, John Boyle. Before we begin, let's hear a word from our sponsor. Hi everyone, I'm Margaret Mary Conger. I'm Senior Patient Engagement Associate with CSL Bearing. I just want to first thank the IDF for inviting me to welcome all of you on behalf of CSL Bearing. At CSL Bearing, we really are driven by our promise to the PI community to develop products, programs, and resources that serve your needs. We're really excited to be a partner on this latest educational effort that the IDF is putting together, so I hope that you enjoy this podcast. Thanks so much, Margaret Mary. For people with primary immunodeficiency diseases, employment is about more than just job satisfaction and making money. You need a job that will allow you to perform at a high standard with your disorder and one that will offer good health insurance benefits. There are many young people with PI who have amazing jobs and you can be one of them. To explore this topic, I'm joined by Brian Rath. Brian is a member of IDF's Board of Trustees, is an attorney by day, and is someone who has lived with his PI diagnosis most of his life. Brian's practice focuses on the representation of various healthcare entities, such as physicians, hospitals, and long-term care facilities in a range of matters, including reimbursement and federal and state regulatory compliance. He also litigates matters on behalf of healthcare clients in jurisdictions throughout the United States. Welcome, Brian. Thank you, John. It is my pleasure to join you on this podcast. As you said, I am a member of the Board of Trustees at IDF, and I am also a longtime volunteer and an even much longer patient um, with a primary immune deficiency. Um, As you also said, I am a lawyer. And so as a lawyer, I think I have to say that anything I say here during our discussion is not and cannot be constituted as legal advice to anybody. Um, and also any opinions that I may uh, share with you and the uh, podcast audience are my opinions and not opinions necessarily of the IDF. So now that we got the lawyerly stuff out of the way, I think we can probably dive right in. Excellent. Well, uh, I appreciate the uh, considerations there. We will take that uh, to heart, as will, I'm sure, our listeners. Uh, And we just do appreciate your being here. And uh, as you said, let's dive right in. So first, let's discuss the considerations that people with PI must have when finding a job, whether it's their first job or a new job, and not even just a job, but what do patients need to consider when choosing a career? 
It's interesting. I work with the teens in the uh, IDF uh, teen escape program, and I have a chance to speak with them directly uh, about these and other kinds of issues that they're facing. And I get this question a lot, um, particularly from teenagers who uh, may be discouraged about certain industries or certain jobs. Um, I've had kids ask me about uh, being doctors or being nurses or being teachers and, and the exposure to uh, certain illnesses and germs and that sort of thing that uh, those jobs would entail. I like to tell everyone that there really is no limit to what we with primary immune deficiency diseases can do. Um, that being said, there have to be considerations we have to make. We may have to uh, take care of ourselves a little more than the average person. We may, maybe it's just hand washing or maybe it's wearing a mask or maybe it's getting more rest or uh, just concern, uh, concerning ourselves with uh, our own health care. And uh, that may take a little more effort and a little more awareness than some other people. But I believe there are uh, pretty much, uh, there, there is pretty much nothing that we can't do. Now, all of that being said, I think there uh, is one major consideration, and that is the availability of health insurance. Um, and we can get into this more a little later, but um, the majority of Americans get their health insurance from their employers. And so when uh, we as patients with primary immune deficiencies uh, look to our employment and look to our employers, we will have to weigh the, uh, the options that are presented to us as far as health benefits and health insurance because we do uh, cost a little more than the average person and we're going to have to take that into account. Thanks, Brian. Uh, great answer there. Now, what about disclosing your PI to your current employer or even more importantly, to a potential employer? Can you give our listeners any advice on when or if to disclose your PI to your employer? how to disclose your PI and maybe what to disclose about your PI? Sure. Well, disclosure is, I think, at the core, a personal choice of each individual with a primary immune, immune deficiency. Uh, we choose who to disclose to uh, amongst our friends and acquaintances, and then we need to consider you know, who we disclose to and how we disclose uh, in employment as well. However, under the law, no one is required to disclose a disability. So that means that anyone with a PI can keep it to themselves in their employment. Uh, an employer, particularly a, a potential employer, is not allowed under the law to ask anyone about any disabilities. So if, you know, if we're in an interview and they ask, is there any uh, disabilities we should know about, uh, we don't have to disclose our PI. Now an employer can ask, is there anything about you that may prevent you from doing the job? Um, and that's a legitimate question. But for the most part, if our PI does not impair our ability to do the job that we're doing or that we're seeking, we're under no obligation to disclose it. Now, even though we're not under any legal obligation to disclose it, um, we may have to, depending on the circumstances. We may have to disclose our, uh, our disability when it comes to asking for certain uh, accommodations. Um, for instance, if we need to miss a day of work you know, once a month or every couple of weeks for an infusion, uh, we're going to have to tell somebody about that and about why. 
um, if we're, we get sick and we need to go on disability, we may have to share uh, why and the basis for that. So there may be instances where we can't avoid discussing our primary immune deficiency, and that's okay too. Uh, as long as we can do the job, then we are protected under the law um, so that we can't be discriminated against in the job. And as far as how much to tell, I think the answer is one, whatever you're comfortable in telling. But more importantly, I would recommend that we don't share anything more than what we need to share for our employer to understand what's going on and why we would uh, need that, a certain accommodation or why we, we would need to be missing work or um, you know, just the, the most limited amount of information possible. I'll share a story. I actually, while I was in law school, was uh, one summer was working for a, a government agency and I needed to take time off to, uh, to go do my infusions. And I went to my supervisor and I said, um, you know, hello, I need to take some time off because I have this medical. And he just completely cut me off and he said, I don't want to know about it. Don't worry about it. You just take what you need and we'll go from there. Um, and that's some, some employ as long as you can do the job, some employers may just take that, uh, that view altogether. And then one last thing, uh, when sharing this type of information uh, with an employer, I think it's best to do so and think about it in a formal sense. Uh, you should share with your supervisor if you need to share. And if, uh, if, if it's not a direct supervisor, then go to your, uh, your employer's HR human resources department. Um, instead of just sharing amongst the, the, the people in your office, um, if it's time to disclose, uh, do so through the proper channels so that you, uh, you will always be protected um, under the law uh, as you need uh, to be protected because of your disability. Thanks, Brian. I think that all makes a ton of sense and I, I think is, uh, summarizes uh, th those core issues very, very well. Uh, I appreciate it. Now, I've got another question for you. How do federal and state government policies facilitate workforce opportunities for persons with disabilities? Well, the two main laws out there are federal laws. There's the Americans with Disabilities Act, which you know, we refer to as the ADA, and the uh, Family Medical Leave Act, which is the FMLA. Um, these are federal laws, and each state has similar laws uh, protecting people with disabilities. Um, and each state may be different, so I can't really speak to the, each individual state. Uh, but as far as uh, the, the ADA and the FMLA, um, the ADA does protect employees um, from discrimination because of their disability. And essentially under the ADA, uh, employers must provide reasonable accommodations to a, an employee to allow the employee to perform the job. Um, at a level equal to anyone without a disability. Um, the ADA also is the law that prohibits employers from asking about disabilities in the hiring process and also from asking about disabilities uh, during employment um, if there is no impact upon um, our ability to do the job. So as far as a reasonable accommodation in employment is concerned, Reasonable accommodations are things like modifying a work schedule or modifying equipment or um, allowing for 
maybe uh, working from home on certain days, things that uh, can give those people with disabilities, like a primary immune deficiency, the ability to keep working at the highest level, but also accommodate us for our needs, for our disabilities. Uh, it could be simple as every other Friday I need to take off early so I can go you know, to the clinic and do my infusion. Those are simple accommodations that employers would be required to provide uh, to people with immune deficiencies. Now under the ADA, um, it does not require employers to provide any type of accommodation. Uh, the employers can't provide accommodations that are vastly too expensive or that would impact how they, how they do business. Um, but for the most part, people with primary immune deficiencies aren't going to have to incur those, those types of accommodations. So overall, we as people with primary immune deficiencies are protected by the ADA in our employment in both becoming employed by an employer and in keeping our jobs um, as we're employed. Now the second law that would apply to us is the FMLA, the Family Medical Leave Act. And under the Family Medical Leave Act, employees can take up to 12 weeks um, per year of unpaid medical leave. Um, and this unpaid medical leave can be used not only for our own medical conditions or for uh, the medical conditions of close family members. So if, a, if we're a parent of a child with a primary immune deficiency uh, and that child gets sick, then a parent is able to take time off uh, from work to care for that uh, individual. Now, the 12 weeks of medical leave the FMLA provides is unpaid, and that has to be a consideration um, as, we, uh, as we take advantage of this leave. But it also guarantees that uh, we as employees can come back to employment at the same type of job or the same level as we had when we left. So if we have a job that we take 12 weeks off of and the company has to replace us with somebody else, we're still guaranteed that when we come back, we're able to get, if not our specific job back, another job that's comparable to what we were, we were doing before. Um, the 12 weeks of unpaid leave does not have to be taken consecutively. It can be taken in bits and pieces throughout the year. And uh, that can be beneficial for people like us with, uh, with PI that may need to take a day or two here and there for our infusions or a day or two here and there for medical procedures or for short-term um, illnesses. So we are able to take uh, our 12 weeks in little chunks uh, throughout the year. And uh, one thing to keep in mind, though, is that these, uh, these protections are only for employees of uh, companies that have at least 50 employees or more. So people that work for smaller employees uh, do not necessarily have this uh, legal benefit. Now, the employers you know, may offer certain types of leave um, on their own, but uh, the, the FMLA applies to companies with 50 or more employees. Brian, this is great. The, uh, the challenges or the potential challenges are, are many, but it sounds like you've really laid out what uh, a lot of the great resources uh, that are available if people need them. Uh, so thank you for that. So let's take a quick break here and then we will talk some more. That sounds great. 
IDF wants to help you manage living with primary immunodeficiency, including your health, insurance, education, and relationships. You get support from your family and friends, but IDF can provide you with advice and resources to help you cope with a wide variety of issues related to young adulthood and PI. Please visit us at www.primaryimmune.org for tips, advice, and support. Welcome back. My guest here is Brian Rath, who is discussing employment considerations for young adults with PI. Thank you, John. And like I said before, I am glad to be here. So if we have any other questions, let's move right in. Well, we do have some other questions, and here's the next of them. So now that we've talked about some of the generalities of employment issues with living with a PI, uh, one of the most important aspects of dealing with this new job uh, is the health insurance that comes along with it in many cases. So let's talk a little bit about health insurance issues. As a member of the PI community, it's especially important to understand how these health insurance issues uh, exist, even though that they can be complicated and challenging. Brian, can you explain a little bit about how health insurance ideally should work? How health insurance should work? That's an interesting question. Um, I think that is somewhat of an ideal uh, situation question. But how health insurance should work is that a large group of people would pay into a system and that system would cover everyone's health care needs equally and that means the costs of everyone's health care would be shared amongst the group people that needed health care would uh, have their care paid for by the contributions of everyone and those that didn't need health care at a particular time um, would be in, uh, guaranteed to have their health care uh, services paid for in the future if they were uh, to need them. The larger the group, obviously, the uh, more money would be uh, available to care for people. There would be more healthy people contributing to the system uh, to cover the costs for the uh, less healthier people. Also, uh, the more people that are part of this system that are contributing and that are insured um, actually drives the cost of health care down because people with insurance tend to use it and go to uh, the doctor and seek health care uh, earlier than they would otherwise if they didn't have insurance. So that um, if, you know, if I were to get a cold and I didn't have insurance, uh, I may wait until that cold got very bad before I showed up at the emergency room. But if I were to get a cold and I do have insurance, I may go right to the doctor and he may prescribe antibiotics and I might be over that cold in a few days and never have to go to the expensive emergency room. Um, so ideally, the more people that are insured that contribute into the system, um, the more people are covered under and have their health care uh, needs paid for and uh, the less the health care needs uh, actually are in the grand scheme of things. Now, this ideal is sort of what uh, the Affordable Care Act, which many people know as Obamacare, uh, was striving for um, within the system that we have now of private health insurance companies, which is not ideal. Um, 
uh, at all. And uh, the idea of the Affordable Care Act was to uh, ensure the most people possible so that the most people possible were contributing, not only contributing to the system, but the most people possible had health care coverage so that uh, they would be able to use the health care coverage earlier and therefore drive costs down over the entire system. I did fail to mention one very important uh, aspect of, of health insurance, particularly for people with primary immune deficiencies. And uh, one very important aspect of, of health insurance that the Affordable Care Act tried to uh, address as best as it could, and I think it did, um, was that there are certain of us that have pre-existing conditions. Certain of us that when we contribute to this system of health care, know that we have conditions that will necessarily incur costs to the system. And uh, most of us, particularly those of us with primary immune deficiencies, uh, did nothing to obtain those pre-existing conditions. That's how we were born. We didn't have a choice. Now, the Affordable Care Act, and I think what is the right thing to do in the, in, in, within the health care insurance system is uh, pro prohibits uh, any discrimination against those of us with pre-existing conditions. We are allowed to be part of this system, and we contribute into the system. Our health care is covered. Now, we still pay into the system just like everybody else, and um, so we are still part of the, uh, the entire community, um, but we are protected, uh, and the law protects us from uh, being excluded because of our pre-existing condition. Brian, thanks uh, for, for that addition as well. So just so we're all on the same page here, can you tell us a little bit about the different types of insurance, a little bit about each, public versus private, uh, anything that you think that our listeners need to, uh, to understand as they're getting a handle on all of this? Sure, and quite honestly, this is another topic we could have a million podcasts on, or one podcast that was two days long. But uh, briefly, health insurance right now is set up where there are private health insurers uh, in the marketplace, and we've heard the names Aetna and AmeriHealth and Blue Cross Blue Shield and those types of insurance companies. And most people in America get their insurance through those types of private insurance companies through their employers. So we go to work for a company, and uh, you know, well, me for instance, I work for a law firm, and my law firm. Uh, has a contract with the local Blue Cross Blue Shield plan, and therefore um, I'm insured through my company um, by the local private uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield plan. Um, that's how most people get their insurance. Those insurance companies, those private insurance companies, also offer um, individual group insurance policies, and um, people can go and just pay directly for their insurance um, from the private insurance company. Um, that's a much rarer instance. Um, then there is uh, medical insurance provided by the government. Uh, first, uh, we hear often terms Medicaid and Medicare, and what's the difference, and what, uh, what, what does that all mean? Uh, essentially, Medicare is government-sponsored health insurance uh, paid for by the federal government uh, that's available to people who either have disabilities or are uh, over 65. 
Medicaid, on the other hand, is a joint program paid for by the state and the health, and the federal government that provides health insurance to uh, to people who have limited means, to people with incomes and with resources below um, certain levels. So people who are too poor to, to buy their own private health insurance are covered by Medicaid. Medicare is provided to the aged and disabled. Um, so when we talk about government insurance for young adults with PI, um, many of us may need to be uh, under a Medicare program um, as uh, disabled individuals, and that's how we would get government health insurance. Uh, and then there's a mixture of pr private and public insurance under the um, Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, um, in which people are able to obtain health insurance on an individual basis, not through their employer, from these private health insurance companies, but their premiums are supplemented um, by the federal government. So people, based upon their income, can uh, purchase an individual policy from, say, the local Blue Cross Blue Shield private insurance company, and um, the money uh, that they have to pay for their premiums, they may get some of that paid for by the, or all of it paid for by the federal government. And so that's sort of a combination of both private and public um, health insurance. And the purpose of that is to, uh, the government wants as many people insured as possible um, because uh, the, the more people that are insured, um, the more people are going to take advantage of, of health insurance and health care, and it will uh, make the population ideally healthier in, in the long run and drive costs down. Brian, that's, that's uh, really helpful. And I, for one, would be okay with a two-day podcast, uh, but, you know, I, I think that uh, your summary uh, on that issue is probably of more interest to our listeners, so thank you for that. Now, benefits and costs do vary widely from insurance plan to insurance plan, so if choices are available, what should one look for to identify the most appropriate plan, especially for a person with PI? Well, when we talk about choices, um, usually we're talking about in cho choices of health insurance plans uh, provided by our employer or choices of health insurance, levels of health insurance plans uh, under the exchanges, which are how people purchase uh, health insurance under the Affordable Care Act. Um, in either case, for people with primary immune deficiencies, it's going to involve some math, and uh, that's just too bad. But, um, and I'll give you, an, for instance, from, uh, an example from how I choose my health insurance. Um, now, my health insurer, the, the Blue Cross Blue Shield plan through my employer, has open enrollment once a year, just as the exchanges do in, for the uh, Affordable Care Act for Obamacare. Um, so private health insurance companies will have open enrollment um, during a specific period of time, usually about a month long. Uh, the exchanges um, under Obamacare, it's much longer than that but so what my employer does is send out um, information to all of its employees about the different offerings of health um, plans within you know the offering that the insurance company gives the employer now what I have to do is look at the different plans because they are the coverages are different um, and the costs are different so we have to think about things I have to think about things like how much is the deductible 
Now, the deductible is the amount of money that I have to pay out of pocket before my benefits kick in. Um, so some plans have a low deductible and some plans have a high deductible. Then I have to think about, well, how much are my co-pays? So when I go to a doctor's office, um, does the insurance company require me to pay $20 or $50 for every doctor's visit? And how many doctor's visits may I have during the year? And so I have to think about that cost. And then I have to think about, well, how much is my coinsurance? So not only do I have to pay a deductible, and not only do I have to pay co-pays every time I show up at the doctor's office, I may have coinsurance, which means my share of how much um, each doctor's visit or each uh, procedure or each of anything is going to be covered. So uh, some, in, some plans may say the insurance company is going to cover 80% and I have to pay 20%. And so some may be 100% is covered by the insurance company. So I have to take deductibles, co-payments, co-insurance into account. Then, on top of all that, I have to look at the big number, which is the premium. How much do I have to pay each month to buy the health insurance plan that I want? And now I'm looking at premiums, deductibles, co-insurance, and co-payments. And it gets confusing. And different plans have different levels. So um, I choose what's called a high deductible insurance plan. So I have a high deductible, that means I have to pay a lot out of pocket, but after I do, everything for me is covered at 100%. So my co-insurance is covered at 100%, and my co-payments are covered at zero dollars, and um, my premium is actually pretty low. Um, that works out best for me as to how much I pay each month and how much I end up paying out of pocket the entire year. Some people may look at it and be able to do the math and pay a higher premium, but have a lower deductible. And so it, uh, their, you know, their math may work out that that may be a better plan. It's difficult to think about all of these factors, but it's gonna take a calculator and a pencil and some paper to figure out what works best as far as how much we have to pay each month and how much we have to pay for each doctor's visit and each prescription visit um, to get to uh, what's best for each of us individually. Brian, that was great. Um, now, one final question here. Patients with PI are sometimes denied coverage for a needed therapy, treatment, or some other sort of resource. How, in general, can someone appeal this sort of decision? Well, unfortunately, people with PI uh, run into this problem, I believe, more than they should. Um, it is not uncommon for uh, people in our community to uh, receive insurance denials. Um, it's important for us as a community and as individuals to understand, uh, first and foremost, uh, what our rights are and uh, the reasons for denials. Um, so we have the right to ask questions. We have the right to understand exactly why we're being denied a particular treatment that we think we need or, more importantly, that our doctor thinks we need. Um, I know uh, I've shared with the IDF uh, or I've been participated with the IDF in their program, which uh, has stated that insurance companies are not doctors. They don't know best. Our doctors do. So if we do receive a denial, 
um, we have the right and we should uh, make sure we understand why we're being denied. If that means calling up the insurance company and speaking to somebody in the customer service department, uh, I recommend doing that. Uh, make sure that we know why we're being denied. And uh, every time someone calls the insurance company to ask these questions, get a notebook. I've had my trusty notebook I've had for many, many years and take notes and write down the date you called and the time you called and the person whom you spoke with and take notes as to what that conversation was. So that uh, sometimes these denials can be simply resolved on the phone. Um, I once got a denial that uh, said that uh, my uh, service was being denied because the insurance company wasn't the insurance company that was supposed to pay for it. It was supposed to be Medicare. Well, I'm not on Medicare, mostly because I'm not 65 years old. And so I just asked them to you know, maybe check my birth date in their, uh, in, in their computer system, and that was I was able to resolve it over the phone. Um, but sometimes there are more serious reasons, and uh, we need to uh, make sure we jot down all of our notes. Every insurance company has an internal appeal process. So when we get a denial, Every time we get a denial in the mail, there will be a piece of paper that explains the appeal process. Every denial has to have that by law. We take that, we have to read it and understand what our appeal rights are. And we have to be very careful because we have only a certain number of days, you know, whether it's 30 or 45, we have to read, make sure that you know, we read the paper to figure that out, um, in which we can appeal. Make sure you don't miss the appeal date. Um, the next step, I think, would be to go to the doctor and have the doctor contact the insurance company. And having a doctor advocate for you as a patient with PI um, is, I think, the, the best thing we can do for ourselves. We can call them, we can, you know, we can discuss it with people, but the doctors have the ability to speak to the insurance companies and they can get things moving. Um, if we, you know, then we follow the appeal process internally. Once all the appeal processes internally are exhausted, if we still haven't uh, gotten the uh, result that we feel we, we should get, there will be uh, a, another level of appeal process to an outside um, entity that will then take over the case. Most often, we don't you know, have to get to that, that point. But um, you know, we, the most important thing is to understand the appeal process, make sure we uh, follow the, uh, the deadlines, uh, we get our doctor involved, and stay diligent. Keep making those phone calls, keep taking those notes, uh, and keep uh, pushing. Oftentimes insurance companies will deny something and just hope that we go away, because uh, then they don't have to pay for it. But if we're diligent and we you know, still pursue our rights that we know we, we have, we can get the results we need. And I uh, make one final suggestion to um, anyone that may be having any issues with their insurance company is to contact the IDF. Um, obviously, the IDF has resources that we as individuals just don't have, and the IDF can help guide us through this process as well. And I think uh, you know, the IDF is invaluable for this situation for those of us with a, with a primary immune deficiency. Brian, thank you so much for taking uh, all this time to uh, come and share your perspectives, uh, both with the kind of general uh, employment issues and then, of course, where these uh, employment issues run into insurance, uh, which is, of course, absolutely critical and, and kind of a part of, uh, well, being a young adult and learning to 
Live with PI. So, uh, Brian, thank you once again for joining us here today. Thank you, John. It was certainly my pleasure. Uh, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. And many thanks to our listeners for being with us today as well. We hope that you'll join us for the entire series as we continue to explore the concerns of young adults. Until then, all of us here at IDF want to wish you good health and strength. And remember, you're never alone. There are always people out there who want to help. We all just have to find each other. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation. The Young Adult Series is supported by a charitable donation from CSL Bearing. Thank you to CSL Bearing for their support. Also, special thanks to Bryson Kemp for scoring this episode. Please subscribe to this podcast so future episodes will be pushed to your device automatically. And rate us on iTunes, as that will help others discover this podcast series. To learn more about primary immunodeficiency and the PI community, please visit the IDF website at www.primaryimmune.org. And if you have a question you would like answered, email us at info at primaryimmune.org. Thanks for tuning in.